I'd like to offer some reflections this evening on the theme of impermanence, or my alternative title, what it means to be living in rental accommodation. One of the primary and fundamental aspects of the Dharma teachings is the reality of change, the fact that things do not stay the same. And the Buddha described this as, um, he said, it's the elephant's footprint. And so far as the elephant's footprint is the footprint which encompasses all other footprints. And so too the truth of change, the truth that all that arises is subject to passing. This dominates the world of things. And in many ways we could see this human existence as living in rental accommodation, borrowed accommodation. Some twenty years ago my wife Catherine and I returned to uh, to Devon after living a couple of years at a retreat centre in America. And uh, we didn't have many resources or financial means and so we were very happy and uh, grateful to be invited to stay at a very lovely house on the edge of the River Dart um, mansion in fact and have the, the really minimal duties of being there in case the elderly gentleman who didn't need looking after as far as he was concerned, just in case he needed someone, so his, at least his uh, children would feel relaxed about him being on his own. And so we were very fortunate, very happy, a lovely place. We got to live this wing of this large house. Just uh, finding this thing moving around. Is that okay, volume-wise? Yeah. And um, we were there for a bit over a year, and um, just as kindly and warmly as they'd invited us to leave in about a year's time they said they'd like us to sorry as they'd invite us to come they said they'd like us to leave and so of course we were you know we weren't paying to be there we were just sort of uh, slightly almost working guests but not quite working um, and so we left and uh, we were kind of moving between friends places and like various uh, not free steady living situations for a while and then some friends of ours who we knew from travels and retreats together in India were buying a house and they were in fortunate circumstances from their sort of help from their family they were buying quite a large house and said you know we don't want to live here by ourselves do you want to come and live with us we thought great you know and uh, of course we were paying rent but it was modest in relationship to what it could have been and we lived together for a year and a half, and then at one of our regular Saturday meetings that we had, our friends just, you know, without much preamble, told us they'd decided they'd like it if we'd move out. And what's their house? So, you know, we could kind of think, hmm, what's going on here? But something interesting in that process of, oh, okay, so we were invited in and then we were invited out. And life's kind of like that, isn't it? Kind of, here we are, we've been born. We're here for a while, not forever. And the landlord is somewhat unpredictable, shall we say. We don't know how long we get to live here in this world 
with this body. And so the Buddha invited us to contemplate this, to reflect upon this, to consider the significance of this for how I live my life. And one of the reflections he invited or encouraged that one could usefully bring to mind, take to heart every day, he said, you know, to contemplate that everything that is mine be loved and dear to me, that I will be parted from. Just to kind of let that in a little bit. Everything that is mine, beloved and dear to me, that I will be parted from. And to acknowledge that, we see, yes, that, you know, at a bottom line sense, we and others will die. There's something about that where we may, in acknowledging, there may be sadness, there may be grief. That's not inappropriate. It's not that we shouldn't have a heart response to that. But also important is to consider, do I really live in the light of that truth? Do I really take on that this is how it is? Because often we only really acknowledge it when it seems close, imminent, when we're actually losing something or someone. And until then, we kind of live somewhat removed from that reality. And this, this perception, this recognition, this understanding was something central to the Buddha's journey, to his engaging in his spiritual search. In fact, as he um, encountered aging and death around him, he, he started to contemplate and he, he wondered about it. And he, he came to the question he posed himself before he went on his journeys, before he left his, his home and his life as it was till then to go and explore the world and what is possible. He said, being myself subject to aging, sickness and death, being myself subject to impermanence, doesn't make sense that I seek and pursue other things which are also subject to aging, sickness and death, that are also subject to impermanence. And so we might find ourselves resonating with that question. Well, or maybe not, but that sense of what do I want to orient my life towards here, given that this is the situation? And yet the interesting thing, of course, for most of us is that uh, change is all around us, and yet we don't necessarily act accordingly. We don't necessarily live as though that's true. And if anyone were to ask us, we'd say, of course, things change. If we could ask a small child, they'd tell you things change. But how do we live our life? And I remember the, uh, very strongly the experience once of coming to teach a retreat here in, um, in late June um, after a period of, of warm weather in June, which, you know, is, it does happen apparently. Well, it does now and then. And anyway, I was coming, and it had been actually really warm the last week or two, to the extent that as I was thinking what to put in my bag to come and spend a week at Gaia House, I was trying to find some clothes that looked like they were tidy enough to wear for the, you know, feel like you have to be somewhat tidily dressed. Um, and 
all the things I had that looked tidy were for cold weather and wet weather and you know um, I realized I was starting to get a little bit distressed about or concerned and anxious about I don't have enough clothes for this hot weather to be doing this um, doing this work and in the end I packed and I came along to Guy House and I was here and not entirely surprisingly um, on the day or two after I got here it started to rain it got really cold I went into my bag and I looked and I didn't even have a warm jumper and there was this really interesting moment of wow I was in this trance of worry about having enough of the right sort of clothes for hot weather I mean, I have clothes I wore in other countries, like in India, which didn't need to be so smart, so that was all right. But I got so worried, and underlying it was this assumption that the hot weather was going to continue. Now, if you've spent any time at all living in England, you understand that that's, you know, quite an assumption to be making. One could use possibly stronger language about it. And yet... Isn't it interesting to see how we interpret experience in such a way that we imagine continuity? And we do that again and again and again. And so the the Buddha spoke of this as this misperception, this mistake, in fact, that we make to see that which is impermanent as permanent, to relate to that which is not going to continue to be here as if it will. And it happens and plays out in so many ways. Perhaps a few of you have had the experience of sitting in meditation that you might recognize when suddenly, despite all previous evidence to the contrary, things seem to be going well. The body is calm and at ease. The mind is quiet and clear. There's a sense of enjoyment even. And we feel like the sense of deepening stillness and, ah, this is good, this meditation works, yeah. And you know, we start to think, oh, maybe I'll do some more retreats. Now, I could do some long retreats. Actually, they have a month retreat here at, I, at Guy House, or maybe the three-month retreat at IMS. Or, or maybe, maybe I'll go to Asia, I'll take robes, I'll sit in a cave, and we just have this image of sort of light pouring out of the cave entrance and people coming to visit and bringing food and bowing. And you know, this... And, and this whole projection of this meditative experience into the future and my life based upon it. And then at some point I realise that I've just spaced out completely. I've been lost in some kind of whole inflated fantasy and I haven't been present for the last ten minutes. And I go, oh, oh this is just typical. I'm hopeless. I can't do this. It's not possible for me. I give up. I'm out of here. I'm going home right now. And in that, we project that moment of lostness into the future too, as if that's all what's going to be, and start making decisions based on that. And, you know, I heard a story of a a yogi who came, having been on a retreat, came back the next year, um, was actually sitting with Catherine, my wife, and uh, told her that he was actually driving through Plymouth before he realised he'd left the retreat. It's like that whole sense of I'm out of here, he just completely, almost unconsciously got himself out and go and drove away. And then somewhere he realized, oh my gosh, look what I just did. Like we get carried by these waves, and so many of them based on an assumption of something that's going to continue. 
when we notice ourselves struggling with difficult experience, if we look into the process, often what we'll see is some belief or idea that this is going to continue. Some fear that it will be forever. You know, if we ever say, I can't bear this experience, it's really interesting what we mean when we say that, I can't bear it. Because actually, it's happening, you're still here, you are bearing it. What we're saying is, I can't bear the thought of it going on forever and me having to endure like this forever. Even though in this moment, actually, as I said, it's here, I'm here. might not be great, but it's actually doable. It's that projection into the future that is so often based on some either hope for or fear of continuity. And so looking at this territory is really important and starting to handle the tendencies of the mind to move away. To see, ah, what's it like if we just examine those places where we start to conclude this is the same as, it's the same breath, boring. Or where we say, always, it's always like this, it's always like this, always I come in to meditate and my mind goes crazy. Or never, never, never. You can probably fill in the blank, fill in the sentence. And yet those things are very, very unlikely to be true. Maybe often, predominantly, regularly, consistently, but always. Nothing happens always. When we say never, the only reason we can talk about it because it happens sometimes, or we'd never thought of it. So on retreat, one thing that sometimes happens, and as we get deeper and we're sort of really in the heart of the retreat these days, we can sometimes get a little bit relaxed about it. It's like, oh, things aren't so tough. Yeah, it's not too bad. I'm kind of enjoying and sort of feel like I can cruise from here, you know. And often in the back of that assumption is the sense, oh, this is going to go on. It's like the retreat will go on forever. It won't. Plenty of time left, but it'll end. We know that, but do we actually really know it? One of these, one traditional reflection from the Zen tradition. You know, these days are relentlessly passing. How well am I spending my time? These days are relentlessly passing. How well are we spending our time? Not just these days of the retreat, but our life is equally to be reflected upon in that light. To live our life as if we were to live forever. When we know that we won't. But somehow it seems easily we conveniently forget that. How do we do that? It's remarkable, isn't it? How we somehow manage to do that. The French philosopher Gaillot, he once said, I'm not a student of philosophy, so I heard someone quote him. And, uh, but it, it was good. He said, if we know but do not act accordingly, then we know imperfectly. If we know but we do not act accordingly, then our knowledge is not actually fully embodied or embedded in our life. We know imperfectly. And so the process of developing insight could be described, I think, very effectively or usefully as the transformative process of correcting misperceptions 
ways in which we're acting as if things are in a certain way when in fact they're not. And even if we know they're not, we're still acting that way because at some level we haven't really seen the truth there. And so there's a movement from, from blindness to wisdom, from not seeing, not understanding, to beginning to see the truth more clearly. And truth isn't a singular with a capital T. It's like the truth of what's actually here that shows in so many different ways and forms. And so much of the misperception that we live our life through and in is because we haven't actually examined our experience so carefully. We haven't looked to see what's really happening. We've sort of looked, but just kind of at a surface impression, we could say. And there's a metaphor I find or an image I find really useful to illustrate how that happens for us. Because it's not as if we're stupid or something. It might look at a little bit, you know, with me in the, the packing my clothes for the retreat. One might think, you know, that was pretty silly. But it's something that happens to us. And so if you could imagine driving in a car on a long straight road, I know there's not so many of them in Devon, but you may have encountered them elsewhere. If you're on a long straight road in a car and you're just driving at a constant speed, they say 70 miles an hour on a motorway. You know, it's not, well, that's the speed limit, isn't it? So, um, if you look out the front window at what's out in the horizon in front of you, what you'll notice is it doesn't seem to change at all. It's just there. Now, if you look out the back window at what's behind you on a long straight road, don't do this while you're driving, obviously, but if you look at it for a little while, it doesn't seem to change either. Does that make sense? You can imagine how that would be if you've done, you might have done it, but even if you haven't, we have a sense, oh, it's not changing on a long straight road. If you look out of your side window at what's on the side of the road as you're going past, and again, don't do this if you're driving, it's going past so quickly you cannot actually focus on anything. It's a blur, a flicker of the movement of experience. And when we're driving, of course, our attention is mostly in front of us and a bit behind us, and there's very little to the side. And that's often how we're living our life. The way we tend to be oriented towards past and future is that we have these images, impressions, and retained what we call memories of our historical experience. And they're fragments of what happened. We think we remember the stories and experiences of our lives. But if we ever run a memory, consider this. It would take as long as the experience actually took to happen for us to remember it fully. To remember the last 20 years of my life would take me 20 years. If I was actually remembering. But no, I'm just accessing a few images and particularly impactful or significant pieces of information that I've kept. And our sense of the future is nothing more than and only made out of those fragments and pieces from the past placed in front of us and imagined somehow recreated either the same as or different than what the past was. It's either that, it's the same as or it's different than, but it's entirely in relationship to that which we have known. There's no other basis for any sense of future. Does that make sense? Does you follow what I'm saying there? And our attention is so fixated so much of the time on the past and what we can learn or 
understand from it, and then attempting to enact, based on that past, a future that fulfills as much of what I want and avoids as much of what I don't want as can be. And that's what our mind is doing. We've talked about that movement to past to future. And what we do in meditation practice and what we're doing here is we're bringing our mind into the present and looking at what's right here. To the car metaphor, it's like looking at the side of the road. And so we need to slow down until we get to a rate of movement where we can see what's there. That's why we say, actually, let's reduce the amount we're doing because we're really good at processing fast. But we process without really taking in what's going on. And as we begin to slow down, not just physically slow down, but as the degree of input that we're generating internally and we're processing starts to slow down, we start to see it. And some of you have described in the groups, like actually seeing your mind creating content and thinking, whoa, look at that. We start to notice it. We start to see it. And as we pay attention to the immediacy of our experience, and it becomes more, not just it slows down, but our mind becomes more refined and precise and more able to see the details and the particularities, we see that it is changing, changing, changing all the time. The apparent solidity of our experience, of this body, this mind, if we look at it closely, it's just fluid, it's liquid, it's pouring through this moment and constantly reconfiguring shapes and forms. The sights, the sounds, the smells, the tastes, the touches, the thoughts that we encounter, flickering, flickering, constantly changing. And we're are all the experiences we've had in our life now. All the things that we really enjoyed, all the things that were really difficult, where are they? We can't really find them. Where are all the thoughts you've had? All the important ones, all the pointless ones? Where are they? They're just gone. They're just gone. And all the thoughts we're going to have, they're not sitting in a cupboard waiting for you to come and get them out. They don't exist. Likewise, the experiences that we encounter, will encounter in the future, they're not there somewhere. They don't exist. And so if we actually start to turn to, if we allow ourselves to be open to, in a sense be confronted with the reality of change, of impermanence, of the fluidity of life. We start to encounter a sense of something both remarkable, mysterious and slightly possibly confusing or perturbing in the sense of we didn't quite know where to land or locate ourselves in the midst of all of this. If we really see how quickly our mind changes from one state to another, from one feeling to another, from doing well to doing miserably, to loving it, to hating it, to enjoying it, to not caring about it. All of that we see. And the Buddha, he said, you know, it doesn't make sense with this experience changing like this to try and seek lasting satisfaction from this thing that keeps changing, these experiences. 
does it make sense to take this to somehow define who you are or what you are? Given that it's changing so quickly. So this vibration of change, it's it touches us, it impacts us when we start to open ourselves to it. And it can be unsettling. It can be, oh, I'm not sure I really want to know about that. I'm not sure I really want to see it. And often our response, habitual, unconscious and um, conditioned, can be that we don't really want to encounter it. We resist it. We seek to avoid being confronted with that reality. And so much of our activity this is an attempt to find or create some kind of security, some kind of fixity, some kind of permanence or reliability that we can hold on to as a, as a protection against the, the fluidity, the dynamic, transforming, uncontrollableness of changing experience. Trying to hold on to ideas of how things should be, what should happen, ideas of what's right. Often there's a kind of, what we notice, not that there's, there's a place for, of course, supporting things that are wholesome and cultivating and developing what's useful, understanding what's skillful and what isn't. But often when we hold on to things, there's a sense of a tightening that's involved in it. Forms of attachment and grasping that's associated with tightening. And equally resistance and avoidance, it's associated with tightening. And so often we're talking about noticing our reactivity. And Okay, let's soften, let's relax, let's open. But that tightening, that tightness that we get, one of the things... We sometimes wonder, well, why do I do that? I see it's not helpful. But what we get from it is a sense of something that seems solid. Something that gives us a sense of something fixed. And we can invest so much in, in circumstances and experience and possessions and views in the hope that this will give us security, safety, protection from change. Somehow a avoidance of impermanence. And yet, we're ultimately bound to be disappointed. It doesn't work that way. Anything we form in this world is subject to this. And it's a little bit like children on the beach, building a sandcastle. How lovely, of course, why not? And then when the tide comes rolling in, some of the children might be going, Ah, no, no, no! my sandcastle and others might just be dancing around in the waves and even kicking over some of the turrets before the wave gets to them you know the interesting thing about a sandcastle is where do you build a sandcastle you've probably not thought about this too much it's not rocket science but if you try and build it above the tidal zone it's all this dry sand you can't do a thing with it obviously wouldn't make sense to try and build it below the low tide zone would it or watery. It's always watery. You can't do a thing with that either. But between the high tide and the low tide zone, you've got all this wet sand. It's great. You can make wonderful things out of it. But by the very nature of its being something you can make things out of, it's in the tidal zone. And the waves are inevitably going to come back in.
we're living in a tidal zone. Life is a tidal zone. The very nature of it is such that things can be formed. The very conditions that allow things to be formed are the same conditions that mean those things will be unformed as something new is forming. And this is the nature of our life. Helen Keller, who lived an amazing life despite being both blind and deaf, she once observed, she said, security is mostly a superstition. It does not exist in nature, and nor do the children of mankind as a whole experience it. In the long run, avoiding danger is no safer than outright exposure. Life is either a glorious adventure or it is nothing. Remarkable words. She was a remarkable woman. Life is either a glorious adventure or it is nothing. To open to the truth of impermanence is to start to recognize the, the nature of our life as an adventure. An adventure is going into something unknown, unfamiliar, that might be challenging, where we might discover wonderful things, but might also be presented with challenges and dangers. The fact that things keep changing and therefore are not known or knowable in advance means this is just that. It is an adventure. And it invites us to naturally pay attention, to engage. When we realize things are changing, it's much more obvious why we're saying, let's be mindful, let's be present, let's be awake. If everything stays the same, I don't need to pay attention because it's the way it was the last time I looked and I might as well have a nap, which is kind of what we do. We go, any time we're starting to go to sleep in ourselves or with asleep to being present, at some level we're assuming things are staying the same. Because otherwise we wouldn't. It just wouldn't be safe. So there's a way in which encountering and confronting or contemplating the truth of impermanence wakes us up. And this is really what the Buddha was interested in. And I think this is what we're all interested in. So contemplating impermanence in this way, something useful, something important. It's also, I think, important to acknowledge that impermanence in itself isn't all bad news. Like, again, we, we know this. It's like, it would be quite crowded in here if everyone who'd ever been in here was still in here. Really. It would be quite a cr crowded planet. It's quite crowded anyway, but it would be a lot more crowded. When things are difficult. Of course, remembering impermanence is rather pleasant. Oh, great, impermanence. You know, come on, Anicca. Anicca is the word the Buddha used to refer to non-permanence. You know, of course, that's not quite so helpful, sort of, you know, trying to encourage it to... But there's that sense of actually there's some relief in remembering, okay, there, this too is not forever. This too will change. 
all the difficult conditions of our lives, these too will change. Yeah, there's something heartening, there's something uplifting in that. It gives us a certain space with things. Okay, I don't have to handle this forever, just for so long as it's here. And impermanence is really the basis of what we experience as beauty that touches our hearts so so sweetly. Because things that aren't in a process of change very rarely touch us that way. I often think about plastic flowers in restaurants, how they look just as good as a real one until you get up really close. But right from the beginning you can feel, without quite knowing why, there's something not right. And it's because they don't have any rotten bits or curling over bits or imperfect bits. But it's also that they're just they're not in a process of decay. They're not beautiful. They might be pretty in a certain way, but they're not they don't have that ability to touch your heart. I don't know if you've I imagine you've had opportunity to stand watching a sunset. It's kind of amazing, beautiful, can be so captivating. But imagine if it just stayed the same. No, the, the, the magic is watching the colours just slowly, imperceptibly change and move and shift as they do. I can watch them for, you know, for what seems like extended periods of time. But if it stayed the same, it wouldn't take long before we go, oh, well, that's nice, yeah, what's for dinner? There's something about we're engaged by the aliveness. There's something of the beauty that's in it that touches our heart. And we actually feel the preciousness of life only really in relationship to its transience. When Catherine and I got married, um, we opened the ceremony somewhat to the surprise of many of our sort of non meditating friends and family, we opened the ceremony with Catherine singing a song of whom the primary refrain was, only for a short time, life has loaned us to each other. And for us, it was something actually really lovely, just to really feel the preciousness of this amazing thing that is just for a while. But I think for a few other people, just a moment, what are you talking about that? We're supposed to be happy. And yet, in a certain way, it actually brings the happiness because one feels the preciousness to contemplate, to bring that contemplation in. And uh, there's a there's a way in which it it strikes me also. I when I have the good fortune to be able to visit a, a monastery and. Um, in Sussex called, Sussex called Chittist, a Chittist Buddhist monastery, or Chittaviveka, the secluded heart. Um, there's a little um, plaque under a tree in one place that's now, there's a lot of plaques, but when this one was there, it was the only one. And it was inscribed with this poem, and I can't remember the, uh, the author now. I guess it was a haiku and translated, I think, from Japanese. But it goes something like this. The cherry blossoms 
cover the hillside for but a few days. Any longer, and we would not treasure them so. Then under it, it says, Little Sam. And under that, a single date. And there's something about what that speaks and communicates that I find very evocative of the preciousness of a life that was just for one day. Not less precious because it was just for one day. But in fact, immensely precious for that reason. And so opening to impermanence is also opening to the, the, the deep preciousness of life, the mysterious and remarkable beauty of that it is at all. Imperfect, of course, as it is, but that it is at all. Remarkable. And another aspect of impermanence that's helpful for us, when we see it, when we actually take it on and acknowledge it, what it actually does is it gives us the a kind of a sense of, I'll, I'll describe this maybe rather than trying to say it first. When we see this as how it is, when we get that we're living in rental accommodation, we have a different relationship to our accommodations. When we moved into that house with our friends, the second ones who kicked us out, I shouldn't call it like that, but they did. Um, and I, I'm still, they're still very dear friends. Um, but that sense of when we moved in with them, it was really interesting because it was a lovely place. And I remember thinking, wow, what a nice house. And being struck by the fact that they were thinking, oh, this is nice. Let's move that wall. Let's create one of these over here. Why don't we do this to that bit? It's like when we have a sense of permanence in mind that goes with it, we immediately start trying to fix and improve it. When we see these bodies, hearts and minds, or our life in fact is permanent, we immediately start trying to fix and improve it. When we see it as just for now, we actually just live in it. Because it's just for now. It doesn't make sense trying to build a whole new wing on the end of my life because it's just for now. Does that, do you follow that? This sense of, oh, oh, what if it was just for now? These mind states, these thoughts, this very life, in one sense it's borrowed. We don't need to make it perfect. We don't need to fix it. There's nothing wrong with it. That isn't to say it isn't important also to develop and cultivate what's wholesome and supportive for our well-being and that there may not be patterns and tendencies we need to attend to skillfully. But not from a sense that there's something wrong with this, but more maybe the sense that we can support a process of wholesome transformation and change because change is happening anyway. And we can guide it in skillful ways. To really feel into impermanence, to feel it as something that's not just an idea, is to change the way we live. There's a stanza from the, the Diamond Sutra, which is one of the uh, 
the teachings of the uh, the northern Mahayana or Mahayana Buddhist tradition, the later school. Some and uh, it goes something like this. It says, "Thus you should look upon this fleeting world." A drop of dew, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lantern, a mirage and a dream. And that that kind of cascade of images of evanescent, transient experience. To look on this world in that way, to look on this world in that way, informs how we respond to it profoundly. That which we find desirable, entertaining, delightful, flattering. When we understand it's just for now, we can enjoy it, but let it go. When that which is difficult, challenging, disagreeable, embarrassing arises, we can allow it to be because we understand. We can let it be because it's just for now. William Blake wrote, he said, He who binds himself to a joy does the winged life destroy. He who kisses the joy as it flies lives on in eternity's sunrise. Something in just a few words, you know. I couldn't, it takes me a little longer. But uh, in a sense, that's the whole talk. When we take hold of that which is winged or winged, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce that word in that context. Somehow winged seems to be the way. The winged life. It's like things are flying, they're moving, they're traveling. If we grab them, bind, try to bind ourselves to them, we destroy. The light. We lose that sense of lightness, of fluidity, of motion, and the delight that evokes. She who binds herself to a joy does the winged life destroy. She who kisses the joy as it flies lives on in eternity sunrise. That sense of to kiss the joy as it flies, to make contact, to be intimate with, not holding back from, oh, don't grab it. No, actually to be intimately contacting. But as it moves, knowing it moves, knowing it's just this moment, In Blake's words, he's pointing to something that to live in eternity's sunrise, the dawn of the timeless, this points us to something that's possible for us to know. When we live in the wisdom of understanding deeply impermanence. So learning to be at home in a changing world. Not seeking to make a fixed place out of something that is not fixable. Not trying to make a fixed me out of something that keeps changing. Not imagining we can make an ultimately fixed something in the world either. Ultimately, this teaching asks us to 
contemplate and to consider whether it's truly wise and skillful to seek for ultimate satisfaction in things which are changing, which are moving, which are fluid. And letting go as a practice, as a foundation for all we do here. Letting go of the belief, the idea, the hope, the fantasy that there is something in this world of change that could give me permanent satisfaction actually frees us, opens us, opens us to look more deeply. What might we discover when we don't hold on to life, to experiences, to ideas of who I am or who I am not? having begun his journey with this interest and this question to see, you know, does it make sense, me being subject to impermanence, to pursue in my life other things that are also impermanent? Having started with that question, in the maturing of his journey and his wisdom, the Buddha observed, he said, there is that which is unborn, unbecome, undying, Because there is that which is unborn, unbecome, undying, there is a liberation to be known in the midst of that which is born, become, and dying. What might he have been pointing to here? In my early practice years, I spent quite a bit of time in Asia. I was very fortunate to be uh, sitting with some wonderful teachers and retreats in India. And on one occasion, I was at a retreat in Budgaya, and uh, this is the the place where the Buddha was enlightened all those hundreds and thousands of years ago. And they, they uh, one of the monasteries there. And I was on a retreat. I'd been there the year before. And I was enjoying very much, as I had the year before, the puppies, who in the monasteries, it's kind of like a sanctuary. they all sorts of both uh, sort of uh, unwanted animals and often elderly folk who don't have a retirement plan end up at the monastery. And uh, they're kind of a sanctuary and they're supported. There's somewhere for them to be and that. And I was just really enjoying all these, these puppies running about and you'd be doing walking meditation. They'd run up and bang against your foot to see if you're really being mindful or if you put your plate down just for a moment they'd come and help you finish it off because obviously you had too much and you know, they're very compassionate creatures it seemed to me um, and I just delighted in them delighted in them and then at some point in this retreat I suddenly realised and it, sh- it struck me like a like a cannon going off in my, in my, in my consciousness it's like oh, oh my gosh I had been assuming these were the same puppies I'd been enjoying last year. <laughs> and sure, you can laugh, yeah. I laugh too in, a, in that. But it's like, obviously, those puppies have grown up. Not all of them will have survived, but, you know, these are not the same puppies. And it was like this, this kind of flash of insight, in a sense, ah, oh, 
Actually, puppies keep changing. But puppy nature is unchanging. And what it was that is animating and expressing itself through those little beings was exactly the same. Although nothing of those creatures was still there. And yet, somehow, in a sense you could say I was fooled, as we are easily, often, and in another way I wasn't fooled, and we're not. But we just mistake what it is that we're seeing. Because we tend to see the shape and the form and the thing. And there's more than just that to see. The Buddha's teachings point to a a freedom of the human heart that we can know for ourselves that is not far distant from us. That is founded in our capacity to see what is true and to actually let go of the way we hold on to experience, to life, to ideas about ourselves and the world, to the very sense of existence or non-existence. Seeing impermanence, seeing change, contemplating, experientially observing and marking the truth of this as breaths go out and come in, as sounds arise and fade into silence as this moment too comes to an end. This invites us, it reminds us, it ultimately compels us to let go of holding on and see what happens. The holding, the tightening, the grasping, the resisting is kind of what keeps us floating on the surface of our life. And as we start to do that a little bit less and what we notice in our practice, is we find ourselves settling more deeply in to the medium of our life in which we're actually buoyant, in which we actually, using Leela's lovely image from yesterday, we we are actually buoyant in it. We float, in a sense, in it. Liquid in liquid. Water in water. So long as we're trying to keep ourselves above it, it's hard work. When we actually relax into it, it's just, ah, actually we were floating all along. We just didn't quite know. So I'll finish with a poem by Jennifer Wellwood entitled The The Dakini Speaks. And a Dakini is a a feminine feminine embodiment of enlightenment from within uh, within the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. And so the Dakini is speaking to us in this poem. She says, My friends, let's grow up. Let's stop pretending we don't know the deal here. Or if we truly haven't noticed, let's wake up and notice. Look, everything that can be lost will be lost. It's simple. How could we have missed it for so long? Let us grieve our losses fully, like ripe human beings. But please, Let us not be so shocked by them. Let us not act so betrayed, as though life had broken her secret promise to us. Impermanence is life's only promise to us. 
and she keeps it with ruthless impeccability. To a child she seems cruel, but she is only wild, and her compassion exquisitely precise, brilliantly penetrating, luminous with truth. She strips away the unreal to show us the real. This is the true ride. Let's give ourselves to it. Let's stop making deals for a safe, a safe passage. There isn't one anyway. And the cost is too high. We are not children anymore. The true human adult gives everything for that which cannot be lost. Let us dance the wild dance of no hope. The true human adult gives everything for what cannot be lost. As we see and contemplate the truth of impermanence, we come to understand deeply in ourselves, in our bones, in the heart and depth of our being, that this changing mind, body, world experience is not ultimately who and what we are. And equally that who and what we are is not found somehow apart from or other than all of this. And we begin to settle, to allow ourselves to enter into this moment, the living present, this that's right here now, unconditionally, unconditionally entering into our life, naturally, our heart, our mind, our human spirit and presence sinks below the surface of appearance in the depths of our life. Are just there. And have never been anywhere else. So let's have a couple of quiet moments sitting together to finish. Ryokan says, Do you want to know what has been in my heart since before the beginning of time? 
just this. Just this. So may we all here together in our practice and in our lives, may we come to deeply recognize the changing nature of things. And may we come to know in our hearts the Dharma, the truth that is changeless for our own well-being and for the welfare of all beings. (laughs) 